to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. I once made a TV film about the fraudster Robert Maxwell. Maxwell was born Jan Hock, a Jew born into poverty in 1923 in what then was Czechoslovakia. A media mogul, tycoon, former Labour MP, a fraudster who stole millions from his company pension funds. Infamous, hated by many, notoriously litigious, he was known variously as the fat fraudster and the bouncing check. He built Pergamon Press into a global player and bought among myriad other businesses, Macmillan Publishers and the Daily Mirror newspaper group. He died in 1991 his body found floating and bloated in the Atlantic off the Canaries. He had apparently fallen from his super yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, named after his daughter, the socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, now controversial herself for an alleged involvement in a sex scandal and her links to Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein, a late American financier and convicted sex offender. Some said Maxwell was murdered, that he'd been a spy. Others said it was suicide, as his empire teetered on the edge of collapse, burdened with debt, his corruption about to be laid bare. The one-hour TV documentary I made about Maxwell was as difficult to produce and present as I had anticipated. When I made my film, nobody knew for sure that he was a crook, though of course it was widely suspected. The full extent of his Quite astounding villainy came out after his death, the circumstances as mysterious as much of his life. It took me a long time to secure his involvement. He had frequently been scorched by newspapers and TV and was deeply suspicious when I insisted on filming him at home as well as at his work. Though he was keen to keep his private life private, I wanted a rounded picture. For viewers bored by companies and businessmen and balance books, it would help bring the film alive. I played on the idea that he would benefit from being seen as a family man, which might leaven the usual picture of him as a glint-eyed, power-crazed, volatile bully. It took weeks of telephone calls, letters and badgering before winning his consent. Trying to snare captains of industry was always a minefield. Big beasts with razor-sharp instincts, they're easily scared off. Like animals in the wild, if they feel cornered, they'll use anything to their advantage. I wanted their cooperation, but I had to guard against committing hostages to fortune. One could be compromised. Things might return to haunt me. False promises and assurances wing back like a boomerang usually in a lawyer's letter. Maxwell was a stop-at-nothing capitalist. If push came to shove, he'd be merciless. Interviewees have to warn to you, or at least tolerate you. You have to win them round. Without a rapport, a reasonable relationship, 
one could never hope for anything like an honest response. So an ordinary degree of charm, persuasiveness and good humour, humour is crucial, and a real insight into their work and problems was always essential. Maxwell had a weakness. Having spent long periods at close quarters with big-name capitalists, it was something I had learned to recognise. With him, it was marked, a vast, ballooning, megalomaniac ego. With the right stroking, it could help to lure him aboard. So he eventually agreed, and I took a film crew to his office in Worship Street in the City of London, the headquarters of the British Printing Corporation, which he then ran. Worship Street was well-named, his employees being usually on proverbial bended knee, as he stormed from office to office barking his orders. After one such session, as the crew dismantled a paraphernalia of television production, lights, sound equipment, yards of cabling and camera, he leant across his desk, staring at me. Do you want to come to Russia? A thunderbolt. Nobody could accuse Maxwell of being dull or predictable. He said I could film him as he hobnobbed in the Kremlin with Russian grandees. Some claimed he was a KGB spy. I thought it fanciful, but with Maxwell, anything was possible. A more common charge was hypocrisy. He was a champagne socialist who ran an industrial empire, drove a Rolls Royce and lived in a magnificent stately pile, Headington Hill Hall in Oxford, which he used to call Britain's best council house, leasing it from the local authority for a peppercorn rent. One of my best ever deals, he told me, as we sat in the hall's gilded drawing room, Maxwell slurping tea from a big mug with boss printed on it. In his office in Worship Street, he sat glaring at me. I know everybody who's anybody in Russia. I have done for years, he told me. Russia at the time was still a communist dictatorship, a police state. This was before the wall fell. I said I hadn't got my passport. You'll be with me. You won't need one, Maxwell said. What about a visa? You can forget all that stuff. I've been going in and out of Mother Russia all my life. Nobody ever checks up on me or anybody who travels with me. They wouldn't dare. We'll go tonight in a few hours' time. But what about a change of clothes? Buy them when you get there. They're cheap as chips. Look, do you want to come or not? Make your mind up. I was certain that even if I got into Russia without the necessary paperwork, I'd never get out. I also knew if I didn't give him an immediate answer, he'd withdraw the offer. His caprice was a given. If the sequences materialised for a filmmaker, they'd be the holy grail. Love to, I told him, trying to force a smile. I'll fix it, he said. Hunched over his desk, he set me with a piercing gaze. Burly, over six feet, a big belly and broad shoulders. Lord Kearton, the courteous Bill Kearton, politically of Britain's old centre-left, told me he saw Maxwell as a Carpathian bear. 
If there's not a war, he'll start one, Kirtan said. He gets up in the morning and he looks around for a fight. That's how he is. It charges his battery. Without it, he can't get going. He feeds on conflict. He can't begin the day without it. It gets him fired up. He's addicted to wars and battles. It's like a drug with him. I'd become familiar with grizzled capitalists giving me death stares. Lord King of British Airways had the same look. Maxwell was in a white shirt, braces, red tie loosened at the throat. He often spoke to people as if they were squaddies. He ordered me, go immediately to the Post House Hotel at Heathrow Airport. When you're there, await further instructions. You'll be picked up later in my limousine. We'll go to Russia tonight on my private jet. Now don't hang around. Go now. But what would we film? I asked. Was he sure I didn't need a visa? What about getting the film crew out? Won't we be arrested, chucked into the Lubyanka? Detail, he said. Just detail. Sod all that. We'll pick up a film crew when we get there. They're hanging around on every corner. It'll save you a packet on the budget. You don't want to be paying for bums on seats, flying all the way to Russia. It was a valid point. Travel's a major expense on a film budget. Maxwell didn't really know why we were going to Russia any more than I did. He was making it up as he went along, on the spur of the moment. It was another madcap idea which had suddenly struck him. Though one thing was obvious, he liked the idea of being seen cavorting with the Soviet Union's high and mighty. It tickled his ego. The idea was pure Maxwell. Exciting, gallivanting into the unknown, totally half-baked. He was always Herculean on big ideas. You'll see me popping in and out of the Kremlin, he said, scowling at me, his large, jowly face getting redder, flushed with enthusiasm as he warmed to his idea. I'll be holding all sorts of conferences and very high-powered meetings with the people in Russia who really count. Business, politics, that sort of thing. These are the people who make the decisions. You can fill me with all the leaders. I've got real access. No one can match it. These are the big men in Russia. They're not just the committee types, not just the little clerks and a parachick. The ones with the power and the control, they all know me. I've known everybody who's anybody in Russia since the revolution. But what would happen, I wondered, if they weren't in? Or actually wouldn't see him? A trip like this would normally take weeks of oiling up to legions of PR men, fixers and flunkies. Suddenly, Maxwell lost it. He could, of course, on occasion, be positively volcanic. For F's sake, will you stop whittling? I've got vision. It'll be a great movie. These sequences will be priceless, unique. We'll end up with an effing Oscar. We can sort out the detail later. I want you to see the bigger picture, for F's sake. Try and keep your eye on the horizon. Start to think strategically, like Wellington. My knowledge of Wellington was sketchy, but what I had learned over the days of filming was that Maxwell had somehow 
rather assume the mantle of producer, which I'd always imagined, clearly rather naively, to be my job. He'd introduced me to people saying, here's my producer. He's making a rather important television documentary about me. I wasn't overly concerned if it meant that I was getting the material, which was really my only priority, and if it pleased him, then let him play Daryl F. Zanuck, each to their own. If that's really what it took to reel him in, so be it. Nobody could stand on status with Maxwell. Swallow your pride, get on with it, no matter how demeaning, it's called journalism. I'm making a documentary. Maybe I'd better ring the Russian embassy, I said, just to make sure. Visas, permissions, you know, boring things like that. I knew I was tempting fate, playing with fire. His dark eyes were fixed and peering. For F's sake, he shouted, stop worrying. I'm making you an offer which you, as a so-called filmmaker, can't refuse. Don't go near the bloody embassy. They'll get their knickers in a twist. You'll be filling in forms till doomsday. He glowered at me. From now on, and I want to make myself absolutely clear. Sweater broke out on his great brow. His black hair greased down. Bushy eyebrows dancing up and down like a demented Cossack. From now on, you're to think of yourself as nothing more than a piece of effing luggage. You're just a parcel awaiting dispatch. Do you understand? Is that clear? Just an effing parcel. I gave what I hoped was a reasonable impression of a parcel and headed swiftly to the Heathrow Post House, riddled with doubt. The hotel was as frayed as any other airport hotel, its walls and corridors scuffed by luggage and wheel suitcases, an averagely run-down overnight bivouac for parcels awaiting early morning dispatch. I was given the key to a room which one of Maxwell's lieutenants had arranged. I rang my boss, the controller of programmes. Like me, he felt it was too good to miss. Stick to Maxwell-like glue. Roll with it. See what happens. Well, nothing did. Three days later, I checked out, with not a peep from Maxwell. I'd hung around knowing he was as unpunctual as he was unpredictable. I'd stood at the window watching for his chauffeured limo to whisk me to his private jet, not daring to leave in case I missed him. I made numerous calls to his office in Worship Street. Each time I was promised he'd ring back. Something had cropped up. He was very sorry, but he was caught up. He was definitely coming, though. I mustn't leave. But he didn't. So eventually, I packed it in. Duped, downhearted, feeling foolish. I'd been Maxwelled, and I really ought to have seen it coming. Some days later, the phone rang. It was 4am. I was fast asleep at my home deep in the English countryside. Maxwell was shouting down the line. What are you doing? He demanded. I was asleep, I said. 
Where the F are you? I'm in bed. I was scrabbling for my glasses on the bedside table. But where are you, Bob? In Moscow. And it's effing cold. Why the F aren't you here? You told me I was a parcel, and I had to wait for your car to pick me up at the Post House Hotel in Heathrow. A parcel? What parcel? It's all bollocks. Have you got an international who's who? Well, yes, but not here. Why not? It's four in the morning. I don't read the international who's who in bed. I'm never without one. Do you read it in bed, I asked? All the time. To which I had no answer. If you look at my entry in the international who's who, you'll see that your job holds no terrors for me. You'll see that among my many other accomplishments, I've produced the Bolshoi Ballet. Makes your stuff look pretty insignificant, don't you think? You can't miss it, it's a big entry, several columns. He was booming down the line, his voice pitching up and down, loud, soft, muffled, suddenly clear, then a disjointed whisper. I think I'm losing you, I said. It's all the snow on the line, what do you expect? I'm calling from Moscow. What are you doing out there? Filming myself. I've picked up a crew. It's snowing like buggery. I'm dropping in, having meetings with all the leaders. They're really keen to see me. We'll be talking a lot of business and high politics. There'll be good pictures. I'll be taking in the sights, strolling around Red Square. I know what I'm doing. Looking thoughtful, pointing things out. You know the sort of thing. There's not much I don't know about Moscow or really about making films. There was an abrupt click and he was gone. My wife told me to get back to sleep, muttering about Maxwell having a screw loose. But I couldn't. I wasn't used to being shouted at by lunatics and certainly not at four in the morning. It was my own fault. I should have seen it coming. Nobody said making a film about Maxwell was going to be easy. Later in the production, I asked him what had happened to the Moscow footage. Damn shame, he said. I got some really good stuff, but it was lost in the bath. As you know, these things can happen with filming. We were shooting the documentary on Super 16 mil film. His was a reference to the acid bath used in processing. Film can be ruined if held for too long or too little time in the bath. It's still in the bath or lost in the bath, a common coinage in TV, though not so much now with the advance of video. Maxwell, as imitative as a parrot, had learned a little technical jargon, making him sound more au fait with the filming process than perhaps he really was. To this day, I haven't a clue if he went to Russia. The way his voice rose and fell on wires apparently laden with snow, and so cold his breath was freezing, well, that all sounded straight out of Dr Shivago. I don't know if there was film of him with Soviet bigwigs, or strutting through Red Square, nor do I know if footage was actually lost in the bath. Somehow, though, I rather doubt it. I'd spent a chunk of the budget and needed something to show for it. 
so I'd have to swallow what little pride I had left and get the show back on the road. This is John Swinfield. Join me next time to hear part two of the Maxwell Saga. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.